Welcome back to the Para Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today I'm really excited to have with me Mitch Gooley, who is a para alpine ski racer. Uh, he debuted on the Australian national team at uh, age 15, I believe, and competed in his first Winter Paralympics in Vancouver at 18 years of age. Welcome to the show, Mitch. Thanks, Liz. Thanks for having me. Good to catch up. Yeah, it's really good to catch up. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your impairment and uh, about yourself. The easiest way to describe it is is amputee. That's the thing. That's I'm not technically an amputee because I was I was born um, without my lower left arm, so just below the elbow. Um, so I guess I'm a congenital congenital absence of the lower the lower left arm or left forearm. <laughs> um, but yeah, not, nothing highly complicated and um and no I guess um you know accident or illness in my story I was just born uh with one arm and and that's sort of been life for me from the very beginning uh-huh. and tell us about ski racing what you know what is alpine ski racing yeah um <clears throat> is it not a sport that people in Australia know very well um very popular I guess in the alpine regions in Europe um you know in Austria really is the the key probably home of ski racing but um in its simplest sense i i'm alpine skier so a snow skier and i uh i like to say i wear a spandex suit and go around plastic poles as fast as i can (laughs) um which hopefully paints a picture and i think people have maybe seen that every now and then even australians um on the winter olympics uh every or paralympics every sort of four years but um yeah number of different events uh i've skied all of them for a long time and then um, as I'm getting a bit older, trying to, to focus down on a, a couple of disciplines. Um, but yeah, slalom, giant slalom, super giant slalom or super G and, uh, and downhill are the main events. And then there's a, an event called super combined, which is a, um, a mixture of one run of super G and one run of slalom. So like the highly technical elements and then the, the more sort of speed oriented elements of the sport. Um, we have sort of specialists at both ends doing a run of each and, combining those times Mm -hmm. and so the speeds that you get up to on the 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 downhill course for example which is one of the fastest speed events what a what sort of speed would you get up to yeah uh about i think i don't think i've been over well clocked in a race over 130 kilometers an hour but (gasps) just pretty close to that so i think we were one in sochi about 126 um where the speed trap was so that's 2014 so it's yeah. a combination of being a bit of a kamikaze and uh, also having some technical skills for the, the times that you go around the poles. <laughs> yeah, something like that. It's <laughs> funny though, like sometimes um, going, and I, people always are, get excited about the speeds because, you know, it's faster than you go in a car type thing or at least here in Australia. Um, but uh, going really fast doesn't necessarily feel that fast. Like if it's really smooth and, and those fastest points, you're often going straight. Yep. Um, so you there's a, there's less force on your body, if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. you're not trying to, to to change direction. So you're just kind of working with gravity, and it actually doesn't feel slow, but it's not necessarily the scariest time. It's more um, when the g forces are when you're actually changing direction and and trying to work against yeah exactly so then if you come off of maybe it's on a flat that you might be doing 100 honestly like coming off a steep onto a a flat you might be hitting 125k an hour but it's coming out of that if you've got to then make a turn in in where it goes from steep to flat or 
or if you know you might come off a jump at that speed and, and land um mm. and it might be bumpy where you land right it's the it's the bumps that, yep. that are <laughs> at that speed that that's when you realize how fast you're going but if it's <laughs> nice and smooth um and you're going straight you don't necessarily feel the speed as much yep and as a skier with your left hand you don't hold a pole uh so you just hold a pole in your right hand correct yeah yeah so i do wear a prosthetic arm um Mm -hmm. on my left side which is just helps i guess balance me out a little bit because i have that touch more mass on the right side but yeah i don't don't use a ski pole so don't have that ability to drag a pole or or pole plant and and kind of know where the ground is on that side so that has obviously its challenges but um yeah that's the, the key difference okay and as a teenager you were quite focused on getting bigger uh, why was that? <laughs> what do you think of the some of the characteristics of being a good alpine ski racer? Yeah, um, I think it was a common theme in our team back then. You'll remember, I'm <laughs> sure you probably had the same conversation with most of us. Um, we were all a bit small. Yes, uh, <laughs> just a or little. At least, yeah, particularly myself because I was, yeah, 45 kilos ringing wet or something like that because yeah. I was about 15 years old and barely... barely hit puberty um so yeah the sport obviously as we said very fast and um gravity driven so particularly in downhill and super g uh in those open flat sections where where you're going quite fast but you might not feel a lot of force um yeah there's a significant amount of skill and technique that goes into uh, and feel that goes into being able to glide fast but there's also a pretty straightforward physics element that that if you're heavier, um, you will maintain momentum, yeah. um, you know, for longer coming off a steep onto a long flat, for instance, um, or if it's a flat, particularly if there's a flat out of the start um, yeah. where it's a long flat for quite a while, you'll just build momentum quicker if you're if you're bigger. Um, mm-hmm. And the, then by the time you hit the steeps, you're, you're already in front, um, so to speak. So, yeah, there was a big uh, – a lot of the guys I was competing against were sort of 90 – to 100 kilos and I was probably literally what 48 49 something yeah, like that so you're um, giving away a lot of a lot of disadvantage in terms of just that um momentum yeah exactly and it was uh, you know being a young um immature athlete and things you're frustrated because you feel like it's not something you can necessarily control hmm. uh, but I guess the other benefit there were, probably was like an element as well of, of getting obviously stronger, yes. um, but also a bit more injury resilient in the process because, as you said, 120, 130 k's an hour and you, you take a fall at that speed, you, you don't bounce. No. <laughs> um, and maybe when I was that age, I was pretty rubbery, so I probably probably did. But, um, yeah, being a bit bigger and a bit stronger, my, I, I, I'm not sure. I've never really thought of it that way from a from a you know, nutrition perspective, but definitely from a training perspective. Um, training age, training uh, maturity perspective, the, the more that, you know, that we built into ourselves, whether it was explicitly to do with weight or more just sort of strength and, and things like that, but a bit of injury resilience and, and an ability to kind of take those bigger hits and then still be able to come out the other side. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, robustness as an athlete is something that is really important to build over time and uh you know, your resistance to injury and, and illness is something that, you know, keeps you training every day and keeps you competing every day and that's what builds your skill and your capacity over time, like that constant repetition um, and that ability to just keep bouncing back I think is really important. And so some of the strategies that you used to gain weight were also strategies to build that robustness. 
Yeah, and exactly. So what... And I probably oh, that's right. go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say it's funny because I've never probably thought about it until we just had this conversation mm. about how I always felt remembered the you know, and we'll talk about it the, the nutrition's role in in feeding that you know that the the training wouldn't do it alone in terms of getting you stronger and nutrition had a really important role equally nutrition wouldn't have got me wouldn't have done it on its own and and the training had a that kind of symbiotic role yeah but I've never probably thought of it from the injury prevention perspective of like yeah you train hard to get to become more resilient and robust so that you can deal with injury or deal with falls um but that also no matter how hard you trained if you didn't have the right nutrition you wouldn't that, that, that those those adaptations wouldn't happen. Mm. Um, so, so it is an interesting role, I guess, that nutrition plays in in that in injury conversation, not just necessarily around you know, um, sort of having the right nutrients and things like that, but also feeding the training and yeah, and the robustness that came with that. Yeah, yeah. And so, talk a little bit about what that was like as a fifteen to eighteen year old in terms of what did you have to do to put some weight on from a nutrition perspective you know, given that you were also doing the training. Yeah, it was um it was pretty, I guess, interesting and it's not something that I probably talk about that often because, you know, with the exception of particularly that group of athletes when we were all trying to gain weight, um, in most rooms in a normal life setting, complaining about not being able to gain weight is not, <laughs> not a good way to make friends. <laughs> yes. Um, and complaining about how much you have to eat. Yes. Um <laughs> and how how calorie dense that needs to be um, doesn't normally go down that well uh, mm-hmm. in social situations. But um, I guess the the key one for me was literally keeping up with the vo- volume. Um, and and we talked a lot. I, I remember when I was young. It's a while ago now, but um, you know the calorie density of things. And it was sort of like if you. Uh, I remember those conversations with you. It was like if you're gonna have water have juice if you're going to have juice have milk if you if you're going to um you know have a have a piece of toast or a sandwich and you put a spread on it and if you're already putting a spread on it put two spreads on it you know it was like any way to just for me it was about getting the volume in was a big part and and we'll talk more about like I guess the specifics and and what it needed to be and and all that but for me the biggest challenge was just eating enough um I've never been a huge eater to be honest like particularly in the mornings like I always struggled eating food um, before school as a kid for yep. instance I just like I need to be up for a little while before I eat um and so I don't my, I don't want to you know shovel in a huge breakfast but I know that I have to for training and that became a it was an interesting relationship with food because it was you know very much approaching fuel as a as a food source uh, a fuel source yep um rather than necessarily a pleasure um experience or item which was you know has its pros and cons um it's very like pragmatic and practical to to kind of use the fuel tank scenario of you're going to drive a long way or you're going to drive really fast so you're going to use more fuel and you need to um put more in um or you're about to go on a long drive so you go to the supermarket uh, go to the petrol station beforehand um because you're about to go do a long training session um even if you don't like necessarily feel like it um but yeah, it, that was and and that's been a an interesting relationship with food because I love the social aspects and I love the you know I love eating eating I love good food and and there was definitely times when we were really you know 
that the overall volume of it made it not necessarily all that enjoyable and we could talk about that in more detail or, or specific stories but <laughs> mm. yeah because it's just you having to think about it instead of it being something that you kind of look forward to a meal out it's it's there's, I guess, added pressure in terms of, well, I have to make sure that I have the right choice of that meal and, and have I had enough in between times. It's almost like it becomes a constant theme in your days is about putting food in there or, or how am I going to get that extra calorie in? Definitely. Yeah, exactly that. And I remember like it's because I was still at school, obviously. Yeah. I remember having to get like special no- provisions or like notes in my you know, letters to teachers or whatever to allow me to eat during class because we were trying to eat at, you know, shorter intervals yep. um, and trying to get those sort of six meals and, and, you know, five or six protein spikes across the day. Um, and so I was sitting there and, of course, eating in class was not really a not really a, um, a done thing back then. I think yep. now my partner's a teacher. Now they actually, especially in primary school, they, they actually they've acknowledged that your brain runs on the same food that your body runs on, oh, right. the same energy source. <laughs> um, so they have things like I think they have brain break, and they the kids like if they've got a if you got a double period as a eight year old in primary school, they actually let them they get them to eat oh, awesome. in between. That's great, and and they can concentrate better. Oh. Surprisingly, and probably uh, <laughs> and their behaviour is probably a bit better too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not the nicest person to be around Ooh. when I'm hungry. Um, <laughs> as a 30 year old let alone a eight year old so <laughs> yep. um but yeah that and that was an interesting thing because it was like I was the only kid in class that was allowed to eat yeah and that was a bit awkward like a bit of an uncomfortable social scenario as well because you're like well how come he's allowed to eat and I'm not and I'm sitting there munching on nuts or mm. or my <laughs> or the classic you know pulling out a can of tuna in the middle of a maths class um that was never really well received from the majority of the, the class. <laughs> oh, yeah, because I can smell Going it and all. draining it into, yeah, go and drain it into the bin and then for the rest of the day every class in that room can just smell tuna. Um, so, yeah, it, it, there, were the, there were practical aspects of it. In, and as we know in, in daily life, like later on when I was working and training, um, trying to get the food in around a work day, it was, even though there was no teacher to tell me not to eat, um it was still not easy <laughs> yeah yeah because and especially if you're traveling a lot for work it's you have to do a lot of planning to make sure that you've got all of the, the things that you'll need for that whole day exactly yeah and I'm and another one for me is I'm that I'm I mentioned I don't I wasn't a huge eater first thing in the morning type thing I could be a forgetful eater like when I'm busy uh if I'm really busy I could forget to eat um I remember I used to study for exams and just forget to eat and then be like, oh, it would all hit me and go, yeah, now it's three o'clock and I haven't yeah. eaten here or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and I can do that if I've got back-to-back meetings kind of thing and I run through and all of a sudden I go, I haven't had lunch and it's 3.30. Mm-hmm. I had breakfast, you know. <laughs> yeah. But that took a while to find, yeah. Yeah, so that it's interesting that, bit that that even though now you're 10 years, you know, 11, 12 years down the track, it's still – not something that has carried through with you as a natural course of, of action in terms of your attention to that food. It's it's just your typical nature is to it not be the primary focus, and so ha- and I think that just reinforces just how mindful you had to be at that point in time in order to make sure that you had enough. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And like I think through that process, I learned what worked, you know. And so, for instance, like breakfast I I have a 
anywhere I am in the world before <laughs> I, I have a very similar breakfast because I know that I learned through that process, you know, that, that this is what I can stomach this relatively yep. easily and I can relatively enjoy it. Um, even if I'm getting up at 5am to go training or whatever, I can sort of shovel it in relatively easily um, yep. and I don't hate it, you know, which is, and that's, you know, for me, that's yogurt, berries, which are usually like in a frozen variety for, for ease, but also access. And we'll talk about, you know, accessing fruit and vegetables in winter in, in Europe later on. Mm. But the, yep. you know, frozen berries have been a godsend for me because you rip them out of the freezer Throw a, throw a chunk in the bowl, put that in the in the microwave while you get the yogurt and the and the muesli ready, and mm. then presto, I can get a pretty good whack of of protein and carb in, and it's fairly stomachable. Like I'm not chewing through like heavy bread or um, that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. which for me worked really well. And I still that 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 one is fairly not uh, not mindless, but like it it's it's carried through, yeah. and it's a habit, habitual breakfast that yeah that that because I know that I'm better. And if I do forget to eat because I got back-to-back meetings at lunchtime, if I've had that, I know that it'll carry me through relatively mm. well. Mm. Mm. Then if we talk about travel, because obviously with being a ski racer, there's not a lot of opportunities in Australia to, to race. So travel has been a pretty constant companion, um, which means you also don't see much of a summer at all. You've spent years and years and years chasing winters. Um, how does the travel then impact on your ability to to carry that through that that process through and particularly in the early days we always had issues with you you'd go and travel overseas and race and you'd lose a lot of the weight that you had gained (laughs) Um, has that become easier or have you developed your strategies or what how do you deal with that that constant travel yeah I think yeah it was like well it was like I was running the wrong way on a Travelator or an escalator, <laughs> wasn't it? Every time I'd go, every, all the work we did, in which might have taken three months, would disappear in less than three weeks. Yeah. Bugs on snow. Um, yeah, so there's two parts to it, I guess. There's the the actual travel, like the the logistics and the practical aspect of you're on planes and you're on trains and automobiles and whatever else, and it's harder to eat and plan and those kind of factors. Um, and then I think there's the the other part of just being in an unfamiliar environment and with different access to to foods depending on where it is what time of year it is what the the cuisine of the area is um and also what kind of you know kitchen slash um hotel arrangement you have whether you've got um even a fridge like or not um luckily in winter we we have the the nature kutch a lot so (laughs) which is a german natural fridge Um, (laughs) you know we 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 would often be hanging you know if we were buying our own food to to fill those gaps like to have the snacks because we might be staying for instance in a hotel um where they have breakfast and half half pension um breakfast and dinner yep uh served and you don't get a lot of say in that but you need to obviously find lunch but also fill in the snack gaps um to be able to keep that that volume in and that meant going to a supermarket in another country in a different language you know getting food and then um tactically hanging the plastic bag out the window off the handle so that it would stay cold because you didn't have a fridge in your hotel room right um <laughs> yep and make sure that the bears don't get it or some some other critter doesn't come come yeah. in and nab it off your window 
Yeah, and then at different times of year for different camps, that might not work because you might be it might be spring or or autumn, and and you're at a glacier and you're actually lower and it's fairly summery, mm-hmm. so that's not going to work. But then other times in peak winter, it doesn't work either because everything freezes. Free, like, <laughs> freezes, right? And some things can deal with freezing on and off a little bit, you know, over a few days. But other foods, you know, don't cope at all. But equally, don't cope being in a hot, dry. Um, artificially heated hotel room. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's a it's a balancing act, and I think it took me a long time to learn that, uh, and to learn what worked for me in those environments. And and it's still, yeah, there's still times when I struggle. Um, yeah. And what about when you're on hill? Because sometimes, it's certainly with training, if we talk more about training, what you do in training at home is obviously quite different than when you've got opportunities to train on snow. So can you talk us through that? Like what does training look like at home and then yeah. how does that change when it comes to being on hill? Yeah, so we'll take it at home as like dry land training when I'm not not on, on snow at all and that's um, roughly six days a week in the gym slash outdoors um, for for some of the cardio sessions so that might be three heavy lifts and and three to four cardio sessions and a few other bits and pieces like accessory stuff around that and pretty heavy and all that kind of stuff but um those uh they vary right but but it's a pretty normal day i guess like if i'm i'll take the majority of my athlete career where i haven't been working you know mm-hmm. at the same time and and i might be training at 10 30 so i've got time to get up and um, it's a luxury that I'm enjoying again at the moment for a little bit, um, which is get up, have a nice breakfast, take your time, have a coffee. You know, and for me, that's great. And I might ha- go and get the coffee before I sit down for the breakfast yeah. um, because of that thing where I take a bit longer to want to eat naturally for that for that um, hunger stimulus or whatever it is to, to come to me. Um, it, whereas on snow, that might be a 5 a.m. start and it might, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> there's a, there's a, a trade off there with sleep where yep. it would be nice to get up and slowly wander around and wait till the hunger hit me before I shoveled the food <laughs> before I ate. Um, but there's also an aspect of I want to get enough sleep, so mm-hmm. I'll probably push the alarm out and I'll just shovel the food in um, before I jump in the team van and get to the hill or yep. get to the wherever I'm going. So even that changes. And then, like we said, we might be in Europe and and that breakfast might change to. Um, or might the yogurt and muesli option might not be available to me. Um, so I might be more having sort of classic Euro breakfast of bread and meat and cheese, yep. um, which is different, um, but has its own very useful purpose, which comes to when it comes to on hill time, mm-hmm. um, because the lunch side of things is uh, can be can be sort of. Um, planned for you you don't have to necessarily buy all that stuff you can always you can just make a couple of extra semels um so little rolls with um you know ham and cheese and various sort of breakfast condiments and things um at, at breakfast yep. and that'll get you through training on the hill maybe mm-hmm. right as 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 snacks or for straight after training when you're in the van on the way home yep so you might have higher um I'm doing the right thing and <laughs> I'd have higher energy snacks when I'm on the hill. Yep. Um, so like things that are going to be high in sugar, fruit bars and sticks and um, things that can really get that sugar in quickly and keep the that going through the session on the hill. Um, and then I might, when I jump in the van to come home, ideally 
I will have pre-planned and had a, I'll have a chocolate milk of some kind in my backpack mm-hmm. um, that thankfully stays cold when it's sitting on the snow. Uh, and then one or two of those little rolls and they'll be my like post-training meal. Yep. Um, and then there might be another later lunch because you're using a lot of energy and there might be another off snow session as well. But whereas at home, sorry that I'm mixing these two things That's instead okay. of going one by yeah. one, but we'll go meal by meal. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, at home lunch might be, you know, a bit less planned when I'm in that, that um, non kind of athlete scenario and, I, and I, I've got time and I might arrange if, I've, if I'm training with another athlete to, to have lunch with them after training, which would be great, and, you know, go to a, a, a relatively healthy cafe and get a, a nice sandwich and a salad or something like that, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. Or it might be leftovers from the night before where, you know, we've made, deliberately made some food where I can sort of pull together um, something that I can take with me to training and, and heat up in the in the microwave at, at training after there's a fridge there and all that kind of stuff. So um, that one comes down to planning. Yep. You know, if I'm well-planned, I'll have my own food. And if I'm not well-planned, um, I might be buying food somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, the key being the constant thing that I was learned when I was trying to put on weight, which is the, the timing of getting that, that recovery meal yep. in as quick as possible. Mm-hmm. Um and that's where things like chocolate milk and, you know, these days slightly fortified versions of chocolate, you know, up, up and go, not not supplements per se, but an up and go that is yep. claiming additional protein um, and things like that that might just help top that up and, and be easy ones that can be ha- on hand, um, you know, previously nuts and, you know, cans of tuna and things um, would, would possibly be stashed in the car. So then on those off chances that, I wasn't plan- well enough planned that I can at least jam a can of tuna in um, and have a, a, a couple of glasses of milk, for instance, because the, the thankfully VIS fridge is always stocked with milk. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and at least that'll get me through the drive home to then make the food if I, you know, for whatever reason, wasn't planned. Uh-huh. And at in terms of snacks that it don't freeze on a hill, what have you found really mm. useful? So I was going to say you'll love this. This is a recent um, recent discovery or rediscovery. Um, my go-to this Australian winter was the, I don't know if you remember, probably a very Australian thing, the fruit sticks. So they weren't like not muesli bars or not not um, not um like the pillowy ones, mm, but, but like- very much like it was like a stick, you know. It was like a, a sort of one centimetre by one centimetre long cubed yep. <laughs> rectangle thing right um and i rediscovered them this year because uh-huh. only because another teammate was looking on the advice of his uh dietitian for some higher sugar snacks to keep that that sort of thing rolling for, through training mm-hmm. um and was looking for the the pillowy ones like the twists yep. sort of um slightly baked kind of fruit bar versions um, so not muesli bars again because, like, more higher sugar and, and quicker in and easier to eat when they're frozen yep. Uh-huh, yep. as well um, rather than a bit more complex, you know, uh, muesli bar or something like that, protein bar or yep. something. So, yeah. So a bit I like just, the apricot I, delight, old yep, style yeah, it, apricot delight exactly. that used to be around. Yeah, exactly those. And I, you can buy them uh, in uh, the in the, the um, shop brand version for – you buy about thirty sticks for about three dollars or something, and they're—I I can't remember the percentages, but I remember looking at them and going, 
this stacks up very well Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the carb percentage. And it's obviously very simple and probably not great for your teeth and things like that. But um, great to have stashed in pockets and stashed in backpacks um, as backups, you know, and and ongoing through training fuel uh, because they're really easy to eat. They They don't get stiffer, really. They don't turn into a full-blown jaw workout, even if it's cold out. So <laughs> that's that's helpful. Um, fruit's also great. You know, like I, I would do a bit of banana and mandarin kind of combo often. Mm-hmm. Bananas are a touchy one because they're really easy to eat. But if they're sitting in the wrong pocket of a backpack on very cold snow, they can very quickly turn black mm-hmm. um, and get a bit slimy. Equally, if if they're sitting in the wrong spot in a very hot car, yes, <laughs> um, they can go a bit dicey. But um, they're my classics, like in terms of getting through training, mm. and then the like I said, the up and go or the chocolate milk afterwards. Choco Traum um, is the one I use in in Europe often. <laughs> yeah. What about the hydration aspect? Mm. Again, a hard factor of our sport because um, we're on the hill for a long time. We're up at altitude, um, all those things, and also we're lapping a chairlift. But, but particularly, and, and something that maybe doesn't come into the thinking as much, but we might have a training lane um, where you've got a really finite tight. Like you might only have a two-hour lane yep. where you have allocated that spot, and you need to make the most of those right, like that time. Because if you take too much time between runs, you've obviously got this built-in chairlift time every run that you can't. That's fixed. Yes. you can't make that any faster. Um, but equally, like you can't ski around with a water bottle because you can't r- run the course with a water bottle. So it'd be great if you could drink on the chairlift and then hand it to someone and it f- arrive at the bottom of the chairlift again for you. But mm-hmm. um, and now that I think about it, maybe if I made friends with lifties, I could ask the top lifty to give it down to the bottom lifty and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But there's might be hundreds of other ski races, and you know, it's just not really gonna not gonna work. Um, so you have to be really careful and it took me a long time to learn to drink during training yeah. um, because you want to make the most of what you got and particularly because depending on the weather, conditions could be deteriorating quickly. Um, yes. So just kind of understanding that you're not going to get the most out of it if you're not well hydrated and well fed. Um, yeah. Strangely, I, I actually have a um, stool, like a little camping stool that's in my backpack mm-hmm. um, because often we're getting dressed on the side of a hill or whatever else and it's nice to have something to sit on um and i these days as a way to remind myself to drink every run when i set up my backpack whether it's at the very bottom of the course or if it's at the bottom of the chairlift depending on locations i get that stool out and open it up when i when i'm unstrapping my skis and stuff when i'm getting ready um for training open it up and i actually put my drink bottle on top of it um so it's visible every lap. Like I put it in the most visible spot and the drink bottle sits on top of it. So if I'm tired, I can ski up, get out of my skis, sit down on the stool mm-hmm. and have a few drinks and kind of breathe and also think about my run and everything else. But it, it's just a good visual reminder also that if, I'm, if I've done a few couple of runs and not had any drinks, I can ski. And I, even if I am rushing, I can still ski straight past that stool, grab the drink bottle quickly, you know, have, have a decent drink put it back on the stool yep. and keep going. Um, yeah, great strategy. Yeah. Nice. So in 2017, you'd been consistently performing, consistently a top 10 World Cup finisher. You're in a fairly large group of athletes in your category and you won a World Championship gold medal 
in the super combined. How was that for you? <laughs> um, yeah, it was pretty special because it um, had been, I guess, I'd, I'd probably underperformed at the, the couple of major championships before it. Mm-hmm. Um, so world champs and also 2014 Sochi Games was pretty pretty average for me in terms of I, I wasn't happy with how I, how I performed probably. I'm sure, sure the team probably wasn't either <laughs> um, when I think about it. But, uh, yeah, so it was really nice to kind of um, perform at a major event like that after, you know, a long time of I think my first World Cup win was in 2012 and I didn't win a world championship, which is effectively in the same field. It's just on a different hill and it only happens every two years type thing mm-hmm. uh, until 2017. Mm. Um, but that, uh, in a lot of ways that's the nature of our sport. It's it's outdoors, it's different hills, it's different, um, you know, there have definitely been major events where I had very, you know, uh, poor chances just due to hills or um, conditions, things like that. That, but, but equally that's something that can impact everyone. So um, that's the nature of the sport and, and, and so it was nice to do that. Um, in that way and and I think it was cool because it was a combined um, and I was um, I'd been really disappointed I I skied really fast in the downhill trainings I think I'd been in in the top three every day and then and at the downhill race um, Robin Koosh had an amazing run and having been like top five-ish in training jumped into second and, and actually bumped me out and up fourth mm. um, and I thought I really thought it was going to happen if that makes sense yeah. like it was like yep this is the major championship where it's going to happen um, skiing well, I'm going to get the mon- not so much the monkey off my back, but I'm I'm going to ski a good downhill, get a downhill podium, which also had a lot of meaning for me because coming back to the putting on the weight, mm. right? As a as a young star, um, a lot of that was around super G and downhill and trying to be competitive. Yeah. Um, and to to do it in downhill would have been pretty cool. And and I just started, you know, I had some World Cup podiums in downhill, um, that year and the year before, which took, you know, it was only twenty. I think my first GS podium was 2011 or 12 and then first downhill podium was 2016 so it was was a lot longer for me to mature both as an athlete and as a body and all that kind of stuff to be able to compete in that sport so yeah and then and anyway the combined the super g run i was seventh so again not like (laughs) not in the medals like i'm 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 in seventh but i know that the people in front of me are all speed skiers yeah um and predominantly um, and I know that I was skiing really good slalom, so it's like, well, it's a long way. But I, then I saw the course set, and it was turny, and it's it's always it's steep there in Tavizio on the the bottom section. Um, and I was kind of like, well, okay, like snow's good, course is good, tracks like the the hills good. Um, I probably like I could probably jump four spots here. Like I think I can get in the medals if I have a really good slalom run. I'm just going to go out and. And make some good slalom turns, and then see what happens. Because mm-hmm. um, we're in reverse order, right? Second run um, of the top fifteen are, are flipped. So um, all I could do was sort of set the clubhouse leader kind of scenario, and then sit and wait. And that was kind of the approach. It was like you know, make some good slalom turns. Step one. <laughs> Step two. Make sure that when you get to the bottom, hopefully you're in the lead. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, because if you make some good slalom turns, when you get to the bottom, you should be in the lead. Yeah. And then it's. It's nothing I can do after that. It's just wait and see what happens. And, and you know, athlete after athlete came down. And um, anyway, at the end of the day, six guys came down and, and, you know, lost more time in that slalom run than they had on me in the in the Super G. So, um, yeah, it was pretty cool and, and shared it with 
you know, uh, with Robin, Robin Kush, um, who's the nephew of, of Didier Kush, who's like an all-time great in, in able-bodied ski racing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, pretty pretty cool. Um, he's a good friend and, and uh, was a young fellow. I think it was his, you know, it was a, a big deal for him too. So Cool. Awesome. So you're just about to head back to Europe for the first time in two and a half years after having a planned break and then a COVID-induced break. Um what do you feel like you've learned over that time of that two and a half years about yourself and just any reflections that you have coming in to build up to Beijing? Yeah, it's been it's been good and I think everyone obviously has learned a lot over the last two two years in the world we've lived in. Um, but I guess for me when I took that time off, talked about it a lot with my sports hike and it was like this is a this is a break, but but this is an end unless there's a choice to start again, um, which took a while to come to terms with, as well as the planned break started about six weeks earlier than it was initially planned because I crashed at World Championships and broke my wrist. Um, so, yeah, it was a funny way to to be kind of grappling with that, of going, this is a break, but there might not be a start again. So it's an end, and it's ending with a crash, mm. a, a pretty big crash in mm. downhill. Um, and then a rushed flight home and whatever else, and it was like this is kind of a weird way to be to be trying to stomach the fact that this is possibly an end unless there's a start again. Um, so yeah, it took a little while, and I kind of grappled with that a lot early. And then I was finishing my masters and and wanted to work and kind of have get get some things in place, I guess for transition, whether that was happening right then uh, or, or afterwards. But also it was a I, I joked and called it long service leave um, <laughs> for a while. But but it was that was probably a way of protecting myself from the fact it was in a lot of ways a mental health break. Mm. I'd been in the sport fourteen years or something from when I was a child. Like I was pretty much fifty fifty life pre and <laughs> life before the team and life after life on the team yeah. and um during a pretty like you know important development phase of of your life. And so I think I just needed to see what else was out there. As uh, that sounds cliched, and so like I went backpacking, <laughs> you know, yeah. anything like that. It was just. Um, see what normal life was about uh, and kind of get some runs on the board and, and get rid of that fear of the unknown of like when I stop skiing, what's going to happen? Yep. Um, and that's, I think, the, the takeaway. The biggest takeaway is like, yes, transition is still hard and yes, I don't, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up um, in some respects, uh, but I know that it's not the scariest thing in the world because I've done it. Yep. Like I've, I've got a job and then I've got another job and then I got made redundant during COVID um, and then I got a, you know, a consulting job. Like it was kind of this process and I feel like I kind of shoehorned a lot of career learning, um, some of it COVID driven uh, into into a two and a half year period, if that makes sense. Mm. It, it felt like a bit of a supercharged career journey and I feel like thankfully I'm not that far behind like my peers who might have finished uni and been working for you know, seven, eight years, mm. um, which is nice um, because it, it, it validates, I guess, your experiences in sport and, and, and what you learn from that and, and how transferable that is, which I think is a really cool thing for, for athletes to, to know and hear and understand because you're always told that, but it's hard to kind of articulate it. Yep. Um, so that was pretty cool. Um, but, yeah, I've also had to learn how to sort of slow down and be okay with being at home uh, as we all have. but. Um, my partners had to learn with learn what it's like having me around, <laughs> around all the time. Yeah, I think um, there's a few people who've had that struggle. 
<laughs> um, so yeah, that's been that's been fun, and and you know we we got a dog and all that stuff. But I guess from a like coming back to sport, the big thing is it's been really refreshing coming back to sport because um, I think as I said probably on the phone to my my psychologist yesterday was like <laughs> you, you learn that the best day in an office is probably still not as good as the absolute worst day on a ski hill. Yeah. And that's that's no disrespect to, you know, um, people working in offices and I will work, you know, ostensibly in an office for for a lot of my life yeah. um, for, from now on. So, um, you know, I'm sitting in my home office right now, <laughs> um, which is previously our spare room, but COVID will get you. So, yeah, um, yeah uh, my, my point being that, yeah, it, it just changed my perspective a little bit on skiing and I was able to kind of this year um, getting back on snow in Australia and in the middle of lockdowns and changing borders and all this kind of stuff, like everything was very uncertain and very kind of not perfect, inverted commas. And in the past, I probably would have got being a, a very sort of mastery-driven perfectionist, yeah, um, wanting everything to be perfect and wanted to put all the ducks in a row so that everything would be great and then if it didn't work out then you kind of come crashing down on yourself I had a different yeah a bit of a shift where it was like this is what it is um and I can make the most of it and and even if I don't make the most of it today it's I, I could be sitting at my desk <laughs> um and I don't mean to, to yeah like I said that that's that'll be life for a long time and and provided that I'm working in a field where I can work in alignment with my values and, and, and things like that, then I, I think I can um, enjoy that in a different way. Yep. Um, but, yeah, it, it certainly shifted my mindset on the hill and made me able to really be probably a lot more positive because I think we're taught as athletes, so often taught to look at the stuff that's going wrong um, because that's the, how you get better, right? You work, you focus on the 3% of things that aren't aren't good mm-hmm. um but you forget about the 97 percent of things you are doing well and, and i'm a classic for like hammering myself on the stuff that that could be better uh and and as a result you, you sort of start to think that way all, all the time yeah um so it's cool to kind of go how good's this i'm on a ski hill um the sun's shining the snow's not perfect but you know i could be sitting at home awesome. in my office <laughs> it, it, exactly um <laughs> You know, and and so and there was a bit of a crossover period where I was working at the same time, and I knew I had to go home to the desk. So it was like I'm going to stay out here and do as many runs I can because <laughs> I'm going to go go to the gym and I've got to find a way to get enough food in and all that kind of stuff. But I've also, um, you know, got a pile of emails sitting there, so yeah. um, or a report due or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> so yeah. So what recommendations do you have for practitioners who are working with para athletes? So with, I guess it's hard for me to think in a real sort of parallels because my disability probably hasn't had a lot of impact on my food. I guess in in some respects, like there is a cooking aspect and, and there are things that are harder and easier to do. So there is that side of things and it's a good consideration, like not only thinking about the, you know, the physical um, in terms of what their needs might be and whether they change because of their disability um, and how that impacts them sort of through their training and their day. Um, for instance, I don't know, sit skiers, right? Like you get into sit skiers, going to the bathroom yeah. can be a really big it's a thing. It's huge and, 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 thing, yeah. And, and it, yeah, and it was for us too, really. Like when I think about it, we were always pretty like we don't really want to drink that much at training because then we ha- we can't pee because we're in a race suit and 47 layers of 
yeah. um, you know, uh, clothing and padding and, and everything And there's else. only one it's bathroom TR. and it's right down the bottom of the hill, but that's not where our race course is or the training course is. Exactly, yeah. And then you throw in additional stuff where you've got to physically get out of a sit ski and then the wheel, you've got to get into a wheelchair that you can then get it or onto prosthetics or whatever it is that you, you use to, to sort of get around. Um, so that was always a big one and that was a hard one. <laughs> Strangely, the thing that helped me the most with that is getting a two-piece training suit. So back in the, the old days, they used to ski slalom in, in what's called a two-piece suit. Uh, so it's much like a pair of Oh, it's still a, a speed suit, but a tra- race suit, but it's like a pair of overalls and then a jacket. And I train ever since the first time I got one of those, oh, this is the best thing in the world because I train in one of them all the time because it's a lot easier to go to the bathroom. <laughs> you don't have to take all the top layers off <laughs> for the most part. Mm-hmm. Like sort of do a uh, full-blown bathroom um, visit, then there's a bit more going on. But again, a bit easier. So it's a weird, weird little practical detail, but um, yeah, I, I think, and that, and that probably comes back. My experience is, is very winter sport focused, and and a lot of those things will probably be applicable to able-bodied or para athletes in a winter sport environment. Mm-hmm. Um, that yeah, but but with nuances. Um, but yeah, I guess probably thinking about the practicalities of okay, it's great to say these are the types of foods you need to eat and. Um, they need to have, uh, these are the timings you need to eat them at and those kinds of stuff, but also considering, okay, like telling a person with one arm to do X, Y, Z cooking may not be re- like certain aspects of that might, might not be realistic. Mm-hmm. So what can you do? And, and I think, you know, practitioners are very good at, at thinking about that from an athlete perspective of going, if they're working or studying or whatever else as well, and they're time poor, um, you know, grabbing the pre-cut veggies or the whatever else and those things mm-hmm. can help. And and certainly that can, can help for people with a disability at times. Uh, but <laughs> interestingly, that often comes with a cost implication. Yeah. And most, most para-athletes uh, <laughs> and winter sport athletes that I know um, – you know, tend to have that financial pressures as as well. It doesn't, it's not an easy sport to do um, from a financial perspective and, and that can be a challenge, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that sometimes gets weighed up. And I don't know, one of the things that I've always done is I travel with a, for my 18th birthday, I think it was, I got a, I got a chef's knife, like a really good Japanese chef's knife mm-hmm. and it sounds a bit bizarre but I actually travel with it um, because whenever... Obviously not in your hand the, luggage. <laughs> No, thankfully not. Um, thankfully, I haven't accidentally done that yet because it sits in that backpack probably when I'm around Europe for the most part, but get it in the, the checked luggage. But, yeah, it um, it allows me to – I feel like with a good knife, I can safely and efficiently prepare food, kind of everything else you can kind of work around. Mm-hmm. But with having one arm, having a really sharp knife, reduces the the need to hold things yep. um very specifically uh, or very like closely which then allows me to one safely and two like quickly and efficiently and three enjoyably mm-hmm. right like cook without being frustrated that I'm using this blunt knife and chasing something around the plate and probably going to cut my stump in the process because you know because I can't hold on to it and I'm trying to rush because it's already taken me longer and all that kind of stuff yeah and inevitably when you're staying in in hostels or hotels or or whatever their knives the the knives in ski chalets are definitely not sharp because so many other people have been using them over time so you know you you never even though there's a knife there it's 
it's almost never sharp. Yeah, exactly right. So, so that's one of the things that I don't know when I started doing that, but I'm, I think I did it pretty much straight away because I realized because it, it made such a difference to my enjoyment of cooking mm-hmm. at home. And I knew we were going, I think, to the US, so we were going to be in like condo type of um, combination rather than um, in Europe where you're often in more sort of hotels, pension yeah. type scenario. Yeah. Where f- so I was like, we're going to have a decent kitchen, but the knives will be crap. I'll take this and I'll and shape, yeah. Awesome. Yep. Um, awesome decision. Terrific. I kept doing. And what about potential para athletes or younger para athletes, para skiers? Any specific recommendations you have for them? From a nutrition perspective. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. But yeah um, I mean, from a fueling or a feeding or yeah. a, you know, that type of perspective. I uh, yeah, it's, I guess it's fine things that that work um, for you, like work within the bounds of what you have like okay these are the types of foods and types of macronutrient profiles i guess to try and put a scientific term around it um and then the um tell me if i'm wrong by the way uh and the timings of when you're meant to have them but there's not a huge amount of rule other than those things like as long as you're hitting those two key elements what it exactly is doesn't matter that much and so if there's something that you know you can that you enjoy um because if you enjoy it, you're going to eat it. You're going to be better yeah. at like compliance. Or if there's something that you can stomach better at times when you might not feel like eating, whether that's before competition or for me just in the mornings um, or as it used to be when we were um, doing the the sort of six meal a day thing, the, the post-dinner yep. protein hit, mm-hmm. which was the big bowl of yogurt with fruit and music. It's pretty much the breakfast, um, yep. which I then would have to shovel down again six hours or six hours, nine hours later when I'd wake up um, and, and was still full. Um, <laughs> that was that was the key. That was the one that killed me was the morning breakfast. That was when I really hated breakfast yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because I was full from the night before. Um, yeah. But, yeah, anyway, find those things that work for you. And, and then and then stick you know stick to them you can try things as long as you're hitting those key factors of what, what's in it and what's the timing of delivery as per the advice of your practitioners um, then talk to them right use that resource that the practitioner and go if they suggest a few foods that will do that for you and that they think might be applicable or palatable or easy to access in those scenarios yeah like and you try those and they don't really work ask for more advice like either, do your own, not do your own research, but like read your labels, understand how to read labels and, mm-hmm. and see if there's something else that you like that you think might fit that profile based on your sort of overall knowledge um, and then check it and, and then ask, what, is that okay? Is there, you know, or are there other options? Like use that resource of what's something else and it might be like it doesn't matter if it's, if you like eating something that doesn't isn't normally a breakfast food but you know you can eat it in the morning and it has the profile of, the, the nutritional profile of what you need before training, then eat that. Or if it's like heaps of people, I know so many athletes that have scra- you know breakfast, scrambled eggs, like after training kind of scenario because yeah. they, it's easy to cook, it's easy to access anywhere and they love it. I, I don't love eggs. I've got sort of like borderline egg allergy intolerance, a feminine egg allergy in my family. Um, probably part of why I don't like breakfast because I used to vomit at school a bit often and then we realised that it was because I'd had, every time I had eggs for breakfast, I'd vomit at school. Um, <laughs> so, oh yeah that's a bad anyway, association point is if it, if it's not the right thing like if it's not the socially right thing doesn't mean that it's not going to work from a and that's that yeah. utilitarian 
fuel analogy coming in where it's like, well, if this is the way that it's going to work for me, like I'm going to eat, even if it's not the right thing, you know, the normal thing to eat as a dinner meal or a post-dinner snack, um, if it's got the right profile, profile the right then that nutrients you can in put it, it in there. there's no one that the right says that you can't. to deliver those nutrients yeah. to deliver a, a, a positive performance outcome and you enjoy it <laughs> and find it palatable at that time, I don't care if you're having dipping potatoes in yogurt or whatever. You know what I mean? Like no one should care because <laughs> find what works and don't be afraid to, to try things that might not be the normal. Perfect. So, Mitch, what's your favourite food? Favourite food? Oh, can I say coffee? <laughs> yeah, you can. You can say coffee. Yeah. Yeah. That's bad, isn't it? No, not necessarily if it's for the flavour of it. I mean... That's mm. that's the main thing. Um, Mitch, thank you so much for your time. I know it's precious and you've not got much time left in Australia before you leave, um, but I want to thank you for your time and wish you an injury-free leading to Beijing and a brilliant Games. Thanks, Liz. Uh, no, I appreciate, um, yeah, having the time to reflect and think about, you know, all those times in the last 15 years when I was, very young and trying to figure out how to feed myself um, <laughs> in more ways than one. So, no, it's been fun to, to reminisce, but also um, I wish you the best with the podcast and I'm, I'll be, be listening and seeing uh, and learning along the way. I'm sure there'll be other things that I can learn um, still that I can take into you know life after sport. <laughs> yep, hope so too. Okay, great. Thanks, Mitch. <laughs> Thanks, Liz. I learn a lot from this podcast. Mitch started as an athlete at a very young age before he was physically mature and whilst he focused a lot on gaining weight, he was always going to be a smaller athlete compared to some of his competitors. Being lighter meant that Mitch had to ensure that his skiing skills and his agility were top notch in order to be competitive at the highest level. The work that he put in focusing on his nutrition has enabled him to become a robust and resilient athlete who optimizes his capacity to get the most out of every training session, regardless as to whether he's at home or traveling around the world. I think we can also learn a lot from the fact that Mitch never stopped asking questions and looking for a, a solution to a roadblock in his nutrition. I really love the fact that he takes a knife with him because he's found that that is the most practical tool to enable him to be flexible with his nutrition approach. In our next podcast, we'll talk caffeine with Ben Desbro. I hope you'll join us.